You're listening to the Boise Community Church Podcast. We desire to be a people who are following Jesus authentically and missionally. For more information, please visit boisecommunitychurch.org. Father, we just thank you for this time, Lord. We thank you for your word and the gift that it is to us. We thank you that we have the ability to, to hear from you this morning. And so, Jesus, we do. We ask that you would speak to us as your people, that your Holy Spirit would do a great work, Lord, as your word says that it's, it divides between bone and marrow, Lord, that, that it dives deep into the heart and into the subconscious. And so, Lord, we do. We ask that your word would do that this morning, that it would dive deep into our souls. And, Lord, where there needs to be conviction, that conviction would come. And where there needs to be repentance, that we would have the ability to respond in the proper way. And so, Spirit, may you speak to us. May you lead us as we open your word and as we dive in this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm pretty sure most of you are aware of this, but we are currently studying the, you know, the first century biography of Jesus, you know, called the Gospel of Mark. Uh, so if you have your Bible, and if you're not there yet, turn to Mark chapter 3 this morning. It's kind of in the middle of your Bible, or the beginning of the last third. The words will be on the screen this morning, so you can follow along with me as well that way, if, if that's more convenient. Uh, verse 1, another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. Verse 5, he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts and said to them, it said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. And then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed where, when they heard about all that he was doing. Many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him. To keep the people from crowding him, for he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Verse 11, whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Verse 13, Jesus went on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve that they might be with him. And that that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to whom he gave the name Boraginus, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. The word of the Lord. And the 
the thing about this that's going on here is there's there's three types of people that that follow Jesus that we see in this section of scripture. We see the critic, we see the opportunist, and then we see the genuine. And the kind of my heart and what we you know the the title of this message so to speak is what did you come out here to see? Because all these people are coming to see Jesus, and they're coming to see him for a variety of different reasons. And I think when we read these stories, it's easy to put ourselves either in the victim spot or to put ourselves in Jesus' spot. Which, the victim spot's definitely the better point, because you're never going to be Jesus. So that's, we'll just clarify that when you're reading the scriptures. Um, so let's dive into this, this idea. So the first one, the critic. So Jesus is once again on the Sabbath doing the thing that he's not supposed to be doing. He's working. He's, you know, he's doing the stuff that he always gets caught in. Um, but he's teaching. He, while he's in the synagogue, there's this man that enters the, the synagogue with a shriveled up hand. And he enters into the synagogue to worship their God and to study the scripture. And this is the opportunity that Jesus' critics have been waiting for. When they spotted this man with the shriveled hand, they had it in their hearts. They expected that Jesus would heal this man. They had this expectation because of what they had seen and what they knew about Jesus. You know, if we look back on the first two chapters of what we've seen, Jesus is going from town to town teaching and preaching and healing the sick and casting out demons wherever he goes. And this is why they, it says that they watched him closely. And I am curious, have you ever had any interaction like this? Where someone has watched you closely, waiting for you to slip up and fall and make a mistake? Because they had it, it's a, sorry, it's a very uncomfortable place to be. They had it in their mind. They're waiting for Jesus to slip up and break one of their laws. And the key there is it's one of their laws. So they could accuse them. And there's this pretty deep level of hatred that's going on and truly operating in these people's hearts at this moment. Where they're just like, I don't want to see this guy at all. I'm looking for every opportunity I can to hate this person. It's really a, it's a great example of when bitterness really sets in the heart. This is what it actually looks like for us. For me, I actually can relate to this story. Um, I do remember being hated. By, and I, when I was a youth pastor, there was this one dad, and he really did not like me. Um, <laughs> when I was a youth pastor. And I would hold these group parent meetings. So we would have like 30... 30 or 40 parents all sitting in this room. And it was during our youth group. So it was like, hey, the front, front half of youth group, I'm going to meet with the parents. Then I'll do my thing with the kids. And we would do it every couple of months. So I'm meeting with the parents. I have like all these exciting things to talk about and give updates and kind of let them know how the group's doing overall, you know, from a spiritual standpoint, from a practical standpoint, and kind of diving in and giving all these things. And so I kind of always had this sense like, hey, you know, think this guy really likes me that much he just kind of has this look you know you're like walking in the halls and somebody's like Ugh. you know there's always that kind of giveaway he didn't have a very good poker face so I'm at one of these meetings and I'm running the meeting and in the middle of it this guy like stands up 
and he's challenging me on everything and asking me all these super intense questions like, what are you doing? What's going on? And I was like, oh man. So I just am answering his questions as best as I can. Uh, and it became very apparent to, to me and to everyone around me that this guy does not like me. And it was a very interesting thing though because what I watched with this guy was he would grab everything I said and he would twist it and make it into this really nasty and gnarly thing. When really I'm just trying to convey some simple information and just trying to be, you know, let people know about what's going on in our youth group at the time. And the hard part about that was his dislike of me created this blindness where he was unable to celebrate some of the exciting things that we had going on at the group, where we had kids that were giving their lives to the Lord. We had kids that were getting baptized. We had new kids coming to the church regularly, getting involved, not just in youth group, but in other areas as well. When someone's in this level of frustration or hatred or bitterness, you can see it in their eyes. You can see it in their actions. It's a bitterness that's literally visible. But unlike Jesus, though, I make lots of mistakes. <laughs> so I gave that dad a lot of ammo because um, I did make a lot of mistakes and I was far from perfect. But Jesus has not made a mistake up to this point, right? Jesus is sinless. And Jesus knew what was in the hearts of these people. So Jesus, in this moment, he picks this man out of the crowd and he goes, Hey, you, John, stand up in front of everyone. You're going to be my object lesson. Which if you think about this moment, it would be incredibly uncomfortable. If I knew one of you had some gnarly boil blister or your hand was crippled and I said, Hey, I'm going to point this out to everyone right now. It would make everyone really uncomfortable. Probably you the most, if that was you. So Jesus picks this man out of the crowd and has him stand up in front of everyone. And then he asks, he asks a very key question, though. Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? And I think what's amazing about these, these are the religious leaders. These are the people that claim they have the answers to everything. They say nothing. And Jesus looks at them and he's frustrated with the stubbornness in their hearts, their bitterness that had set in and caused them to be completely blind to what was happening. And Jesus then calls this man, not just to like say, hey, I'm going to heal you, but hey, I'm going to actually have you expose everything about you that's that is uncomfortable in this moment you're going to stretch it out there's no promise of anything he just says stretch out your crippled hand and as he does it he's healed he's made whole but what's amazing to me about this story and in the mark's telling of this story is notice how they respond it doesn't say that anyone is amazed or blown away at this Instead of wonder and amazement at this powerful movement and moment of grace about this miracle, the, the, the good that is happening in this moment, the Pharisees, the ultra-religious, and the Herodians, the Jews who were sympathetic to King Herod and saw Jesus as a threat to King Herod, decide they will work together to kill Jesus. Jesus. 
So this moment of this great healing is what leads to the beginning of the pursuit of killing Jesus. And so placing ourselves in this story and, and asking ourselves, you could, be, you could be that man. You could be the man with the withered hand. Maybe there's something in your soul that you need to stretch out and, and expose so that you can experience healing. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's a, a false narrative that you believe or words that were spoken over you as a child or as an adult even. You know, maybe there's something that you're carrying that you're not meant to carry. And you, you carry a lot of shame, and Jesus wants to free you from that. But, or maybe you're like these men. Maybe there's someone in your life, a family member, a coworker, a neighbor, a whoever, that you're not seeing the good that they are doing around them because they're different than you. Maybe you can, and I can be this way. Maybe you are like these men, just like I can be like them. And you're looking to catch a coworker in their mistake or a family member in their words or a neighbor who does that thing that drives you absolutely crazy. <clears throat> if I'm honest, I know this is in me. And I think it's not something that's super far-fetched. I believe it's something that can easily be said in each one of us where we can easily read this story and want to be Jesus or the man with the withered hand, but I would guess far more of us, if we're honest, could relate to some of the heart of what's going on in the, the Pharisees and the Herodians, where we're operating out of trying to, to be right because that's all that matters. <coughs> because when you're a critic, that is all that matters. It's easy to be a critic, to tear something down. It's much harder to be a person that builds. One thing that's unique in my own personal story of church planting is I did. I got wounded by a church that I loved and served at, and, and I still love them. And there's been reconciliation, and there's been you know, lots of work in that relationship. But the thing that I would also point out, like, when I left, even being wounded, I didn't say I'm done with the church. And if anything, it gave me a heart of, I want to be different in how we operate as a church. I don't want to just be one of the people that's sitting on the sidelines tearing things down, but I want to be somebody that's building something beautiful. And working alongside Jesus in building his church. And if you think about this in just practical terms, this idea of building and, or tearing down and building up, anyone can do demo work, you know, demolition work. All you need is a sledgehammer and you can just rip through walls and do that. It's honestly the best part of any construction project that I've ever done. Now, whenever I get into the building aspect, if you know me, I'm not very gifted with my hands. Because it takes skill to build walls. It takes skills to pull electric, you know, the electric lines. It takes skill to run plumbing. To build a home, it takes skill. It's easy to knock one down. 
And so the question I want us to ask this morning, man, are we the critic? And maybe you're not the critic of Jesus, but maybe you're the critic of people around you. Everybody else is getting it wrong, but I've got it right. But you're alone. Maybe God wants to speak into that. Next, we're going to take a look at the opportunist. And there was a large amount of people trying to get to Jesus. One of the things that's really been striking to me as I've read the book of Mark and preparing and, and going through it is this idea that there's so many people constantly pressing in to see Jesus. I knew that he had crowds, but just to see that, that it's just constant. He's constantly in these crowds. And the re- reality is there's a large amount of people trying to get to, re- to Jesus for one reason. To see what I can get from this man. Because he had people coming from all over the regions and really everywhere because of what he had done. And if we're honest, can you really blame them? Like, if your spouse or your child or your mom or dad or someone that you love deeply was struggling with an illness that was feeling like it's untreatable or they have this troubled spirit, you know, maybe they're struggling with anxiety or depression or maybe it's very apparent like there's something really bad going on here. Uh, some spiritual force that, that is really bad and you, they couldn't find relief. They couldn't find healing. Wouldn't you take them to this man? Where he's literally gone in and healed an entire cities. Where there's devastation. I would. <laughs> my, my family, we do. We have some, some health issues in our family. I've helped, some of my kids have health issues. My spouse has health issues. And if I could bring them to someone and then him just him or her just lay their hand on her and and pray over them and that would just like boom they're healed you bet your bottom dollar i would be there 100 percent. and so i don't i don't look at these crowds and go ah, what's wrong with them but at this point those who were sick or the possessed were pressing into Jesus constantly, just trying to touch him. That's why Jesus says, hey, get this boat ready, because they're, they're all over me. Like, I can't get around. And they're doing it because they're, they're longing to be healed. They're longing to be made whole. But they, they came to him not really for him. Not for relationship, not for worship, but for their own benefit. And I will say this, you can come to church, you can read your Bible, you can put the principles you know, in scripture, into practice, in your life, in certain aspects of your life, I guarantee you will get better. You will be a better father or mother. You'll be a better friend, a better person, a better spouse. You'll become better with money. You'll do good things if you take the scriptures and put them into practice in your life. You will have a better life in certain aspects. Absolutely. But in the end, that is not our goal. (laughs) Like my, my goal as a pastor and as the, you know, the visionary for our church of what I hope to see in our church is absolutely not that. Like my goal is not for you to get, become the most successful business person that has ever lived in the Treasure Valley or for you to have seven homes or to do all these things. I could care less about all that stuff. Because if that's our goal... This is, that is the picture of the opportunist. Those that are coming to Jesus just for what they can get from him 
or for the sake of benefiting their own personal lives. Not out of submission to him as the savior of the world or the Lord of their lives, but instead to get something good, you know, you know, get some good, solid parenting advice, money management advice, marriage tips. It's important for us to ask this question and apply this to our own lives. Are we following Jesus or are we just following what we can get from Jesus? And the way that like the litmus test I would ask is your prayer life. And honestly, this is convicting for me personally. Do we come to Jesus only with our problems? Help me with this or that. Lord, my kids keep getting sick. Or man, my wife is struggling. Or, you know, whatever. I'm really wrestling in my job. But do we only come to Jesus with our problems? Help me with this. Help me with that. Or we're simply asking, just constantly asking for things. Or are we coming for relationship? You're like, what does that mean? Jesus wants a relationship with me? I barely have relationships with people anymore. For connection. What do you mean connection? And I would simplify it like this. Are you coming to Jesus for love? Because if it isn't a relationship of love that you come to Jesus, we are missing it. We're missing the greatest thing. And like I said, all those other things are great. Like I think they, they could help you and they'll be beneficial. Absolutely. But they're not the main thing. And if you, you aren't coming for the relationship or the love, here's the beauty of, about Jesus. He still wants you to come to him. In Revelation 3, he talks to the church in Laodicea and he brings this charge where he's like, you're not hot, you're not cold, you're just kind of, you're just existing at this point. But behold, I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. He that's willing to open the door, I will come in and I will eat with him. So it isn't like you missed your shot or you blew it. He's still standing at the door knocking patiently, waiting for you to open up to him. And it's in that moment that Jesus comes in and eats with his people and eats with you. And the beauty of that image, it's a picture of sharing everything and being one with him. This is what Jesus is inviting us into. He's inviting us into the ability to be one with him. If you read through the book of John, he talks about this, where he's talking about the Trinity. And he says that you and I will be one like me and the Trinity are one. We will be together. But me and the Holy Spirit and the Father are one. So Jesus is inviting us into something better. So you can start, you know, and I, I love the way that people come into church. They come in as critics or skeptics. And then, or they come in and they're just kind of opportunists, just kind of trying to see, like, what is this thing? And how do, like, what can I get out of this? You know, is it really going to help me? And then this brings us to our last group, the genuine, where Jesus calls his 12. And these would have been his right-hand men. They let, would have left their careers, their families, all for the sake of learning from this rabbi, this man, Jesus, who has this radical idea and this, you know, this teaching that he's bringing, that the kingdom of God is here. But if you think about what these men did, it is radical to leave your livelihood, your family, 
all for the sake of knowing that you're going to follow someone to learn something from them. But I love what it says in verse 14, and it's, it's going to be on the screen for you guys. It says that he appointed the twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach. Notice that, that he might be with them. It was first and foremost a priority to be with him. He gives them a responsibility and a job after this, but the precursor to everything is simply to be with him, to know him, to submit to him, to understand him, to learn from him, to be with him, to love him. In following Jesus, these men aren't promised prosperity. They're not promised success or anything really. And we could look at what these men accomplished because they radically altered the world. If you think about it, from the first century, the church has existed from these 12 men, which we, a lot of us, when we read these stories about these men, they're not like the brightest and the most impressive guys. They're just like these grungy, you know, one of them's like a political zealot and kind of this kind of, he would have been seen as kind of like the whack job of the group. And then you've got like this guy that's deceiving everyone. You've got these fishermen. There's got these dudes that have really bad anger problems. Like it's kind of a, it's a ragtag group of people that are, that Jesus picks. And so these men aren't promised any of these things. And we can look at them and we can say, man, they're like, but they did something really amazing. And they did. Absolutely. But let's look at some of the things that Jesus promises these men. And these are promises that we can apply to our own lives as well. So Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, he says, Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. So he says, hey, I'm going to send you and you're going to be going to find people. You're going to fish for them and you're going to capture them. And you're going to inspire them to do something great. Then he goes on in Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, he says, Hey, you're going to be hated by everyone because of me. But the one who stands firm in the end, he's the one that will be saved. And then lastly, John chapter 16, verse 33, this is the one other one I had. He said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Everybody's like, that sounds awesome. I love the idea of peace. Peace sounds great. But in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I've overcome the world. So Jesus has promised a lot here. He's saying, hey, number one, you're going to work. Like, you have a job. Number two, you're going to be hated by everyone because of me. Number three, you're going to have peace only in me, though, because the world's going to bring you trouble. And if we dial it back and look at church history and look at what happens, ultimately, one of the men of the 12 is a traitor, and he's the one that, you know, shows the religious leaders who to actually who Jesus is because they couldn't identify him, which I always think is crazy. But, you know, so one of them's a traitor. That's Judas. You know, if you're looking for a name for a cat, Judas is a good one because cats are bad. But my own personal thing. Um, so you've got one that gets killed because he's a traitor. And then there's 10 others that die as martyrs for their faith in like horrible ways. One's thrown off the temple, one's sawn in half, one's crucified upside down. And then John, you know, the one that wrote the book of John in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John in Revelation, even though he wasn't a martyr, he gets put through some pretty bad stuff where he's like boiled in oil and he's put on this island where he eventually writes the book of Revelation and 
all these things for their faith. So the faith that we hold in our hearts and that we hold in our hands that are recorded in this book, it's secured in the work of Jesus, but it's also passed along by faithful men and women who gave their lives for the faith. But Jesus wanted these men to be with him, but he also had a purpose for them. And the reality is, if these men weren't with Jesus, they would have never passed the message on. The first sign of trouble, they would have been like Peter, you know, when Jesus is on trial, like, I'm out. Or actually all of them, after Jesus is crucified, and they're like, I'm out, except for John. Jesus' purpose for these men is very clear. It's to preach the gospel, to have spiritual authority. Following Jesus is about more than just living a good life. Their purpose was to carry the message on and share it with everyone they could. Jesus chose regular, ordinary men to be his disciples, to be his followers. And it was those ordinary men that carried the message of the gospel forward and onward. And this is the last message that he left these men. This is the last thing that he says to them. It's in Matthew chapter 28. You, you, I guarantee you know it. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, so because I have all authority, because I am in charge, go and make disciples of all nations. Not some nations, not the ones that you like or just your neighborhood, but all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so Jesus leaves this beautiful thing for us as his followers. Because this is a promise that he gives to his disciples. It's a a charge and a command. He says, go and carry the gospel forward. But know that you're doing it with my authority. And that I am with you to the very end. These 12 men, that, they are the ultimate reason that we are gathered here today. I mean, obviously we're here because of, we want to worship Jesus. We want to worship the man that they called rabbi, teacher, friend, and then eventually Lord and Savior. They weren't critics. They weren't opportunists. Because, you know, if they were critics, they would have left. If they were opportunists, they would have left. If anything, they suffered because more because of who, being committed to following him. They were genuine in their following. They were authentic, if you will. And it started in the first century, and it has been passed along all the way up to today. And we are meant to follow in these men's same, these same footsteps that these men walked before us. Bringing the gospel to our homes, to our neighborhoods, to our workplaces... Everywhere that we go. Because the dreams that I, and honestly, the dreams that I have for our church and for our community is more than us just having a sweet and beautiful community that I see sitting here this morning. Because I do, I believe that, that you are a beautiful community. Or that my kids will grow up in this sweet, tight-knit community. 
The dream that I long for in our church is that we would be a place where stories flow out of. Stories of redemption, people finding healing, people finding freedom from anxiety and depression, freedom from addiction. Stories of reconciliation where marriages that are broken find healing and reconciliation with one another, where broken relationships are brought back to healing, where we're not just a community that's sitting there listening to people going, yeah, that's okay, like, yeah, that's really hard, but that we encourage people like, no, go back and heal that. Because that's what Jesus calls us to as his followers. To forgiveness. Families being brought back together. Stories of healing where people are being made whole in mind and body and spirit. Stories of hope where those that are lost and alone and isolated finding that they are wanted, that Jesus is calling them to himself, and that we are calling people to us because we have a heart for people. The dreams that I have for our church are not about money. They're not about buildings. They're not about programs. The dreams that I have for our church are stories. Because stories matter. You can always get more money. You can always find new buildings and build new buildings. Stories are the things that we love. And that draw us. And I have faith and hope that those kinds of stories can come out of this this place, out of the people in this room. And it starts like it did with Jesus, and then it works through his people. Because I believe that if Jesus could change the world with 12 really strange men, I believe that he can change the world with the people sitting in this room. And I believe that we are left with that same responsibility to share the good news of Jesus with anyone and everyone. And as we realize that the good news of Jesus is the authority in the spiritual realm to where people need to find freedom. And so church, I want to encourage you. I want to exhort you to to lean into that. As I did my little announcement about those Easter cards, about taking them and sharing them with people. And I'm serious, I want you to do that. I want to encourage you. Let it be a spiritual practice for you. Pray over them. Pray about who you want to give them to. Whether that's neighbors, family, friends, coworkers, whoever. Because my desire is that we would fill this room, not for the sake of filling a room, but for the sake of helping more people come to know Jesus and know his love and to know the love of his church. For the sake of stories of redemption and healing and reconciliation to to come out of this place.
Because the beauty is those stories happen not because people randomly find our church. They happen when we begin to live as missionaries and start seeing people that need hope and need love and need grace. And so may we be a people that have eyes that are open and hearts that are ready to receive and bring people into that. And so I'd love to just pray a blessing over you and pray for you this morning. And Lord, may, may you use us, each one of us, myself included. May you give us boldness and allow your Holy Spirit to guide us that, that to those that need the gospel, that need community, and that need us to love them and show them who you are. And so, Jesus, may you prepare the way. May you go before us, and may we be a, a church that is impacting the hearts and lives of the people in our neighborhoods, our schools, our workplaces, and everywhere that our feet touch. We collectively, Lord, are here saying that we want to follow you, and may you send us out. May we have hearts that are ready to go. And Lord, I do, I pray a blessing of courage over these, the members of our church. I thank you for the faithfulness that they, they come in week after week to study your word and sing to you and give and, um, and serve, Lord. I'm just so blown away by the people that you've brought into this church. But Lord, I also know that you're not done at this moment. And so may you... May you light that fire in our hearts. May you give us the ability to be bold where we need to be bold. And may we be a church that is a light in our city. And so, we just pray all this in faith, Lord. We ask that you would go before us and that you would bless us this week. In Jesus' name, amen. And so as you go, as always, may you go with Jesus' love and peace wherever your week may take you. And may you be ready to share the good news of Jesus and bring people to, to here to hear the good news of Jesus. And so, may God's peace go with you. Have a wonderful week, everybody. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching from Boise Community Church. To find more resources and information about Boise Community Church, or to give to the mission of Boise Community Church, please visit us online at boisecommunitychurch.org. If you were encouraged by today's podcast, please rate and review it so more people can discover the hope and joy of Jesus' love.